Okay, go ahead and flip to Judges chapter 8, and we're going to look through the end of chapter 8 and then into chapter 9 this evening as we open up the Word together and seek the Lord and what He would have for us. Um, Obviously, uh, this study in Judges is uh, controversial to some degree uh, because there's a lot of blood and gore, and tonight will be no different. (laughs) And uh, also keep in mind, uh, there's a picture there on the back of your the music sheet that I will reference for you shortly. There's a reason that it's there. So, uh, Judges chapter 9, I'm just going to read uh, verses 1 through 21. Judges chapter 9, we're going to be introduced to Abimelech the Bramble Man. Judges chapter 9, verse 1. These are the words of God. And Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and spoke to them and to the whole family of the household of his mother's father, saying, Speak now in the hearing of all the lords of Shechem. Which is better for you, that seventy men, all the sons of Jerubbabel, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Also remember that I am your bone and your flesh." And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of all the lords of Shechem. And they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our relative. So they gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of Baal Berith, Lord of the Covenant is what that means, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows, and they followed him. Then he came to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, Seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Drubal, uh, was left, for he hid himself. Then all the lords of Shechem and all Beth Milo assembled together, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar which was in Shechem. Then they told Jotham, so he went and stood on top of the Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and called out. Thus he said to them, Listen to me, O lords of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees surely went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my fatness, with which God and men are honored, and go to wave over the trees? Then the trees said to the fig tree, You come, reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good produce, and go to wave over the trees? Then the trees said to the vine, You come, reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my new wine, which makes God and men glad, and go to wave over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come, reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon." So now if you have dealt in truth and integrity and made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt with Jerubbaal and his house, and have dealt with him according to the bountiful works of his hands, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. But you have risen against my father's house today and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his maidservant king over the lords of Shechem, because he is your relative. If then you have dealt in truth with integrity, 
or and integrity with Jerubbaal and his house this day. Be glad in Abimelech and let him also be glad in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the lords of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the lords of Shechem and from Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham escaped and fled and went to Beir and remained there because of Abimelech, his brother. Let's pray. Our Father and God, you are great, good, gracious, and glorious. And because of that, we do not have to fear nor be insecure. Instead, we can trust that you know what is best and that you are, in fact, working all things together for good for those who are called according to your purpose. Father, we confess that there is great evil in the world and that its stench is putrid and rank. And we ask that you would defeat said evil and establish your Son's kingdom among us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we uh, consider the passage before us this evening, I want to take a moment and give you a little bit of a preview of what's to come and where we're going to go. And so far in our study, we have seen God raise up deliverers and judges in order to squash foreign combatants. These judges have been peculiar people, we might say, men and women with jobs and bills to pay. Uh, they are usually unlikely heroes in these situations, but they are anointed by God in that moment to deliver God's own people out of their own self-imposed misery. They, uh, <laughs> you know, going into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, Israel was to cleanse the land of all unrighteousness. That was their task, including the extermination of the Canaanites and all traces of Baalism. However, as we saw in the first couple chapters, Israel, at the very beginning, at the outset of this, compromised on that command. And as a consequence to that compromise, Israel became ensnared in sin. They gave themselves to their idolatrous lusts, essentially. And God warned this, if you remember back in chapter 2 of Judges, in verse 3, uh, God had said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will become a snare to you. In other words, this is uh, God's statement to his people who refuse to obey him. He says, essentially, you want the idol? Is that what you want? Well, then you better get ready to drink it down to the dregs. And I have to say, that's what we're experiencing right now in our nation. Now, as we've noted several times, this cycle of sin, then oppression, then deliverance, and then sin again, it repeats quite often in the, in the whole book itself. Any reader would stop and do well and pause for a moment and ask a simple question. What is it about idolatry and evil that the Israelites found so enticing? Right? You just simple question. What is so enticing about this Baal and Asheroth cult religion? What is it that's so enticing that they are unwilling to follow God who has done so much for them and chase after these other gods. What is it? Well, Proverbs 26.11 makes it, I think, gives us a clue. And it's like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Now, even still, it is vomit, right? It is vomit. But how is that appealing in the least bit? And the answer, the answer lies in the fact that our, our folly is not seen to be the vomit that it is, Right? If the heart wants something, then the mind will actively justify it. We'll walk circles around, make excuses about our, uh, those sins, right? 
And we'll, the mind will justify, well, this isn't really vomit. It's something else. It's a chocolate cake. You know, that's what, that's what we'll do. We'll, that's how we work in our minds. So think of it this way. Sin, sin itself is enticing and engrossing, isn't it? It's enticing and it's engrossing. Uh, it's exciting in that it satiates the lust of the flesh. It satisfies some craving or some urge that is within us. And it could be something we see with our eyes when our eyes wander, or perhaps it's something we think in our minds, uh, and then we speak it with our mouths, whatever the issue. And sins are sensational in that they always appeal to some sensory experience that we believe in that moment will become advantageous to us. Sin makes us feel exultant about ourselves, rather chipper, proud. Now, God has created us in his image, and part of that image bearing is personality and pre-theoretical experience and expression. I'll explain that. We simply go about our day doing what we want to do, thinking about what we want to think, and desiring what makes most sense to us in our hearts. Most of us function in, right? No one's driving 55 miles an hour down the highway thinking about physics and I mean, you might once or twice in your 60 years of life or 80 years of life, but no one is obsessed about that. Okay, you're not, you know, um, baking soup on the stove and thinking about the boiling point and how that, oh, this is, this is really, oh, we're almost there. We got to be almost there. You know, no one obsesses like that. I mean, very few people obsess like that, but. So we just sort of do what we do. And when I say pre-theoretical, I simply mean that long before we think deeply and introspectively in our hearts and minds about the world and all that's in the world, long before that, whether we're formulating mathematical equations and logical deductions, etc., long before that, we just exist and we experience things reflexively and autonomically. That is, we just go about our business, usually unencumbered by restraints. You, no one like forced you to have the breakfast that you had. Maybe the kids were forced into it, because that's what we're making, and you have to eat this. But generally, adults, you understand that you kind of just do what you do, and there's no major restraints on you. Now, having said that, the Christian way of being and doing and thinking is not hedonistic. It's not hedonistic. Some of the ancient Greeks loved that idea of hedonism. Epicureans and others really enjoy just indulging themselves on whatever pleasure came about. So we don't, as, as Christians, as the people of God, we don't run on autopilot. And when we do, things go bad, don't they? <laughs> we don't do whatever we feel like at the moment all the time. Um, we, equally true, we do not gorge ourselves on anything except the grace of God. So Christians, uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Christians are not people who, talk, or who listen to themselves, they're people who talk to themselves. And you can read Psalm 42 on that. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. He's talking to himself. So we don't listen to ourselves. We talk to ourselves, which is why you need Scripture. And because we reject postmodernism and all of its uh, so-called, the, the ugly so-called enlightenment fruit, um, we don't treat our minds as the central point of our existence. That's what the rationalists do. That's what paganism does. We instead, we affirm that the heart is central. 
meaning that we know that the only antidote to sin and wickedness is a regenerated heart, a regenerate heart that sees folly as vomit, and it says in that moment, that's disgusting. Not that's a chocolate cake that looks delicious. Regenerated heart looks at it different, differently. Indeed, the heart is only able to do such things when the gospel is applied to it. Now, think of this in Israel's context. This doesn't mean that Israel was entirely hopeless, for God did give Israel His Holy Spirit in some measure throughout the Old Testament. Israel had the law of God. They knew what God demanded of them. They were to have that law written on their hearts by active faith and obedience to that law and trusting in His will. They, like us, had options, and they also, like us, had the grace of God. They were to have circumcised hearts. What is a circumcised heart? It's when what we, what we will, what we think, what we desire all line up with the commands of God. That's how you have a circumcised heart. And the reason that sin and folly are de- desirous or desirable and they're seen as advantageous is because, because men justify it in their minds and then they allow their heart to bend their will towards some perceived usefulness or utility. I mean, this is like basic sanctification 101. That's what we do with sin. We see something and or hear something, a little birdie gossiped to us and heard something, and then we have a choice to make in that moment. We either see it as the vomit that it is, or we pretend it's some exquisite cake that was baked just for you. And what are those advantages? What are the advantages that we think we see? Well, tonight's an illustration of all, (laughs) one of the most uh, interesting of stories. So let's look at our text, and I'm going to summarize as we go. Just remember first that Judges spends way more time dealing with the defunct Israelite community than it does war with pagan armies. Just sheer numbers of chapters and, and text. It's more about what's going on in Israel than what's going on in the rest of the nations. War with other nations isn't the point of the book. God's people are supposed to live righteously. This is Deuteronomy 4. And they are to bless the nations in that way, not compromise with their idolatry. In fact, on this point, far more attention is given in Judges to the covenant community's constant quarreling and warring against one another. And we'll see more of that in future chapters. And the same is true for our text tonight. Now we begin where we left off in chapter 8. Look at verse 28. We have a summary. It says, And the land was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Quiet. Uh, some translations say peace, peaceful. And we have to ask the question, quiet or peace? We have a false peace, or at least a compromised peace, a peace without covenant faithfulness. And remember, Gideon, if you recall from last week, Gideon had made an ephod, and he, it became a snare to him and his household. And Israel, in verse 27, had played the harlot with it there. The ephod was what the high priest was supposed to wear, and the priests were to wear those in the temples and the tabernacle. And uh, that was kind of a no-no. But he did it anyway, and he took it to Ophrah, and it became a problem for them. So Gideon, if you recall, he may have rejected the kingship. People had asked him to be king, and he said no. But his actions say otherwise. He told them he didn't want to be king, but guess what? He accumulated lots of wives, which is the temptation of every king, and God warns about that in the book of Deuteronomy. He has lots of children as a result, filling pews upon pews, as it were. And... 
He even had a child with a concubine who he named Abimelech, which if you don't want to be king, you don't name your kid Abimelech. What does Abimelech mean? My father is king. So much for rejecting the promotion to kingship. He had all the benefits of being a king. Gideon finished out his days living high in the hog, as it were. He, he loved what he was doing. And there is a lesson here, by the way. It is possible to grasp something in your mind without it taking root in your heart. But the flip side is true, too. It's also possible to grasp something in your heart and suppress that truth with your mind. So Jerub Baal, which means Baal fighter, Baal contender, he had his own household. Gideon... Notice his name changes there in verse 30. He's referred to as Jerubbaal. That's the good side of Gideon. He's the Baal fighter. But then they changed his name to Gideon. Gideon the compromise, as it, as it says in the text. So there's a name change. And he has 70 sons and many wives. He's living like a king. And then we're introduced into the next chapter, Abimelech. After Gideon's death, things spin out of control. The sons, look at verse 33 of of chapter 8. The sons of Israel turned back and played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Barith their God. So they forgot Yahweh. They forgot what God had done for them. They spurned and scorned the house of Gideon. And, and, and this Baal Barith means Lord of the Covenant. And when you read this, here's what you should be thinking. It's a halfway covenant, a syncretistic religion mixing Yahweh, that's the true covenant Lord, Berith is the Hebrew word for covenant, mixing that with Baal. So it's like paganism mixed in with Christianity. That's what is happening during this time. And apostasy always begins with slight compromise. compromise. So in chapter 9, we find the story of Abimelech unfold, and here's what he does. First, Abimelech goes to his mother's relatives in Shechem, and he devises a plan. That's in verse 1. What's the plan? A consolidation of the body politic. A consolidation of civil procedure here. He, his half-brothers are th a threat to their national security interests, so they must be invaded and dealt with. We don't know anything about that these days. So Abimelech says to his, his mother's relatives and the Shechemites, look guys, there's 70 of them. You don't want 70 ruling. One ruler is better than 70, obviously. Abimelech makes them fear the aspirations of the 70, which is an assumption. We have no, you know, there's no indication that Gideon's sons want to become king. But he puts this, mind, this idea in the seed in their mind. He also says they're religious because their dad was Baal fighter. You don't want a guy like that. You don't want a guy who's going to fight against your idolatry like that. Since he's one of them, Abimelech, in his self-aggrandizement, he suggests that he should, he should be the ruler in order to protect them from future harm. It's like a cult leader 101. You just make people think there's a huge threat, and then we'll come in and protect you. Hmm. I wonder if that applies today. Now, being, being the son of a concubine, by the way, he has no inheritance. He has no meaningful, uh, no meaningful social standing. Abimelech is, is, is basically an orphan. He has nothing coming to him from his dad, no inheritance. He is an outcast. And he probably suffered from father hunger. He needed 
He needed, he needed this power to fill some sort of void in him. Father hunger, daddy issues, that sort of thing. And Abimelech is a man who takes. He's a taker. He does not produce a thing except strife. All of the judges we've met are tapped on the shoulder by God. Abimelech takes matters into his own hands. Uh, you might say he is an anti-deliverer. He's an anti-judge. He is an enslaver. He is Saul, not David. He is the undoer of the covenant with Yahweh. Furthermore, Abimelech is of Cain. He's a half-breed man whose goal is to lead reprobates of a half-breed God. That's what's going on at the beginning of chapter 9. He is entirely hubristic. He's just talking and leading people in with all sorts of nonsense. He's proud. He's self-confident. He is a man who wants to be a leader because his dad wasn't very nice to him. Now, it makes sense to the Shechemites. They're hearing him make this argument. It makes sense to them to establish him as king. By the way, who was the first king of Israel? It actually wasn't Saul. We usually think of him as that, but it was Abimelech. At least a part of Israel made him the first king. So they, they, they agree. They give him 70 pieces of silver from the temple. And Abimelech, he hires some mercenaries, and he goes and kills his half-brothers. He's a man on a mission. The youngest son, by the way, Jotham, he escapes, but the rest of his brothers in verse 5 are said to have been killed on one stone. You might be thinking, how in the world did he do that? Well, this was actually a ritual sacrifice on an altar. It wasn't them carrying one stone around and killing them. They rounded him up, probably tied him up, and one by one sacrificed them. So remember the stone, by the way. We're going to come back to that. Afterwards, Abimelech, he's made king by an oak pillar, probably near the very stone memorial that Joshua had set up in Joshua 24, 26. And also, by the way, Shechem, you, you should recognize that place. Shechem was where Abraham built an altar to God. That was the place where God made covenant with him. When he says to look at the stars and, and all of that, and the sands on the seashore, and that, the, that'll be your descendants. This was at Shechem. So we're, we're seeing an undoing of Abraham. We're supposed to be fruitful and multiply, but they're dying. We have a, we have a problem. So sacrificing Jerub Baal's 70 sons was also an attempt at vindicating Baal. Remember, Gideon had effectively destroyed Baal, got rid of the altars, cleansed the land, but he wants to bring it back. Human sacrifice is always present when men believe themselves to be a god worthy of a propitiatory sacrifice. That's why abortion is present in our nation right now. There's always a human sacrifice involved to uh, stay away from the anger of the gods. Now, in verses 7 through 21, we, we read that. I'm not going to read it again, but we have Jotham's denunciation of Abimelech, and he uses a tree parable. Abimelech, we learn, is the worst part of Gideon, but Jotham is actually the best part of Gideon. So if your children exhibit some of your good qualities and bad qualities, it's in the Bible, it's biblical. It happens. In fact, Jotham's name, by the way, means Yahweh is perfect or blameless. Now, regarding the tree parable, here's how we're supposed to interpret it. If Abimelech's kingship is of Yahweh, it's endorsed by God, validated by God, Jotham says, well, I'm sure it's going to go well. Everything will be great. 
But if Abimelech's kingship is not, and we know reading from the story that it's not from God, if it's not, then he, along with the Shechemites, are going down in flames. Jotham stands on Mount Gerizim. He pronounces this judgment to the Shechemites. Everyone in Shechem did, by the way, go down in flames. The very people who put him in power unjustly. But Abimelech is this thorn bush. He's the bramble man in this story. He's the bramble bush. He's a thorn in Israel's side. So the trees in this parable, the trees of the forest, with their God-given roles, they are content. They're content to exist for God's glory and the joy of man without lording it over people. They achieve their purpose in the Dominion Covenant. They waste no time worrying about lordship. The bramble bush, however, is worthless and annoying, maybe a foot tall, pointless, doesn't give any fruit. It's just a problem. The bramble bush is annoying. It has no joy in his life. And an opportunity for a small bramble bush to rule over the tall vines and the trees, well, obviously that gives him great pleasure. What an opportunity. Since he's unproductive, he might as well be a politician. A true inveterate parasite. That's what our politicians do. Can't do anything else. Can't be productive. I might as well just go lord it over others. Woe to the man who farms out his authority. His God-given authority to other people. Now, I do wonder about the trees. Do they re represent something, perhaps? Here's my theory. Uh, I couldn't confirm this with anybody that I read, so here it is. But the olive tree represents olive oil. Olive oil was used to anoint office holders, signifying true kingship. Abimelech was not anointed. He was not anointed to be the king. The vine represents wine, the enjoyment of life, sacrifice, uh, a drink libation, so to speak, um, and that signifies man's priestly calling. And then the fig tree is the sweetness of God's word, signifying man's prophetic calling. So I think we have a prophet-priest-king th thing here. And I think the point is this. The man who is busy with the joys of the culture-building mandate does not have time to trifle about lording himself over others. All right? This is applies in the church, too. Just... You know, it's a, why, why would you want to be a pastor? Well, because I just enjoy, enjoy telling people what to do. Yeah, not a, good, not a good thing. Not a good thing. But people who are busy with their God-given call, given calling, they're not busy with other things, trying to control other people, trying to lord it over other people. They're content to just do their job. That's the trees in the parable. That's what they were doing. Now, remember, Jotham stands on Mount Gerizim. That is the Mount of Blessing. Across the valley, think of Shechem in the middle of the valley, across the valley is another mount, Mount Ebal. And that signifies the Mount of Cursing. And this is strictly right from Deuteronomy 11.29. Uh, Deuteronomy 11.29, if you want to read later. But and the reason Jotham is standing on the Mount of Blessing is because there is blessing in being confronted with your sins and then given an opportunity to repent. He tells the Shechemites this tree parable to basically say, look what you guys have done. You have put a bramble bush that's a foot tall and only does thorns in charge of you. It's going to consume you. And he prophesies this against the Shechemites. That's, his, that's what his announcement does. There is blessing and repentance. 
Now, we learn in verse 22 that Abimelech, he governed over Israel three years. He had a three-year term. In verse 23, we kind of see what's going on. God, we're told, sent an evil spirit to Abimelech. By the way, same thing he did to Saul. Abimelech and Saul have eerily similar stories. But he sent this evil spirit in order to create distance between Abimelech and the lords of Shechem. That's verse 23. Basically, what God does in this situation is cause division between the people and the leader. Is God sovereign over evil? Yeah. Evil, you see, comes back on itself. So a man named Gaul we're introduced to. I don't recommend you name your children Gaul. I'll explain why in a second. He comes on the scene. He is Gaul, son of Ebed. You know what that means? Loathsome slave. Great name. He, like, like the Shechemites, he, he enjoys the false god worship. And here he comes into Shechem, this random guy, and he starts taunting Abimelech. He starts raising the ire of the Shechemites. Zebul, he's the, uh, the uh, ruler of the city. He tattletales, and Abimelech hears about it, and he comes to fight. Now this loathsome slave ends up getting a taste of his own medicine. He goes out and he fights. He's killed in the battle. And all the inhabitants in Shechem are killed as well. Look at verse 45. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day, and he captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he tore the city down and he sold, sowed it with salt. Salt is a form of judgment, and it's done so that nothing can grow. But the leaders are still left. So Abimelech goes in, he conquers the citizenry, and he goes in after the leaders. And the question is, well, how do they die? Well, they die in a tower that is set ablaze by a tree. Abimelech and his men, they grab tree branches, they, start light, they light the, the fire, and they put it inside the tower, and basically all the lords of Shechem are die. Uh, die. And this is wonderful because Jotham was right. The bramble fire would consume them. Jotham is vindicated. This is exactly what happened. So a thousand people, men and women, died in the tower that was set ablaze by Abimelech. But he's not done. He's an angry man. He's got more lording it over others to do. So he marched toward Thebes. He captured that city. But then we find that there's another tower here. Abimelech assumes that he can do the same thing. He thinks he can burn it and the people to the ground. So they do the same thing in Thebes. They start a fire with trees. They put it in there. But in verse 53, we see the most famous unnamed woman in history do something incredible. How many, did you guys read this ahead of time? All right. Look on your, the back of your picture here. Okay. But a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and smashed his skull. Hallelujah. See this circular tire-looking thing? This is how you made flour back in the ancient times. You had a giant stone that would roll around, crushing the head of the wheat and putting it into flour. This woman knew Abimelech was coming. She grabbed, this is like you grabbing your KitchenAid, okay? Because the enemies are coming. Grab the KitchenAid, we need that. She grabbed her KitchenAid, which was very heavy, more heavy than ours. She escaped to the tower, and she took it there. Now, her motivation was probably because, well, that's my livelihood. I don't want them burning, you know, I don't want that destroyed. 
this is, it takes time to carve that out and do it the right way and so on and so forth. But she, a symbol of her dominion covenant, a symbol of someone who cares deeply about her calling with God, she takes that heavy stone, chucks it over the side, it crashes into his skull, the horror of it all. Remember Jael and Sisera. This unnamed, what a legend, unnamed woman. We don't know her name. But she crushed Abimelech's skull. Abimelech, of course, is embarrassed. He asked his armor bearer to draw his sword and put him to death, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. Saul did the same thing, by the way. He wanted his armor bearer to kill him because he didn't want to die at the hands of the enemy. But we all know what happened. It's in Scripture, and now we laugh thousands of years later. An upper millstone used to grind wheat into flour crushed the serpent's head. God returned, look at verse 56, God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he had done to his father in killing his 70 brothers. God also returned all the evil of the men of Shechem on their own heads, and the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal, came upon them. Vindication, sweet vindication. Let's unpack this. It is interesting that God's covenant name, Yahweh, is not mentioned in this story. We only, we only see God mentioned here at the end. The society is run by complete moral anarchy and complete disregard for the co- God's covenant demands. That's what happens when you disregard God. You have complete moral anarchy. We do see God mentioned in verse 23 when he put the spirit between Abimelech and the evil spirit between them. And then at the end here, we see that he was in charge of this whole thing. But for the time being, everything in this society is going off the rails. Even the Shechemites who put Abimelech in power, they were ambushing passerbyers, travelers, just going out to shop at the local mall, and they were mugging them, and, and it was just moral anarchy everywhere. And that wasn't good for Abimelech's kingdom either. So he was proved to be an inept king. So the Shechemites, their responsibility wasn't even a priority to Abimelech, let alone Yahweh. They put this king in and they realize he's a joke and they don't even care about him. That's how bad it is. So what we see here is an unruly nation engulfed in autonomy and thus self-destruction. Now, everyone in this chapter, everyone in this chapter, with the sole exception of Jotham, views power as something to be grasped for giving no regard to what God might have to say about it. Including Gal, he's just like Abimelech. Just ran his mouth, got himself killed. Everyone viewed power as something to grasp for. Power apart from service, authority apart from service. They wanted the power and they wanted to grasp. And that tells us we know that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is in death. And we've seen that theme repeatedly. Now at the center of it all is Abimelech, Abimelech the Bramble Man. He is the worst sort of leadership. The worst sort of leader is the one who grabs and quarrels for leadership. I demand a title. I demand recognition. I demand respect. That's the worst sort of leader. He's generally unproductive. He's unfruitful. And he thinks his only purpose in life is to rule over others. So he saw an opportunity to become a professional politician. And he took it. And in his quest for power, which was really a quest to be God, to play God, Abimelech led Israel not into freedom and prosperity, 
but into oppression and slavery. And the cult of Baal is statism. It's the rulership of men over other men. That is what's illustrated for us today. And that's why America is broken. Because we have people in power who've been politicians for 50, 60 years who can't finish sentences anymore, but are somehow the leader of the quote-unquote free world. Maybe you shouldn't be a politician for 50 years. I don't know. Anyway, so we learn here that God is the true judge, not Gaal, not Zebul, and not the Shechemites, and certainly not Abimelech. God is the true judge. And this passage is a case study on what it looks like for men who try to do things in their own strength according to their own minds and their own hearts. What happens? What happens when men love themselves? They, they, they're their own Lord and God. They love themselves with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. What happens? This. Evil begets evil, and the son devours the father. It appears, however, that God is suspiciously absent. Why so much evil? I can't believe there's so much evil going on. in the. Can't we, can't we say that today? Well, listen, God is at work judging every single day. God is at work judging every single day. We just can't always see it. And we need to be careful about pointing our fingers at other people and claiming that what they're going through is God's judgment on them because of some failure that we might perceive. It might be, but our job is not to dish it out. We are to warn others, warn our brothers and sisters, sure, um, but back it with Scripture, of course, and do it from a posture of love, not envy. But regarding the world and its evil, sometimes God's judgment is simply delayed. And it's not like... I remember this conversation back when Obama won, won the presidency. Oh, God's going to really judge us now. I'm like, Well, no, I, I, think, I think he is judging us already. It has been for a while. It didn't just start with him. There were three years between Jotham's parable from the mountain and Abimelech's death. Three years of moral anarchy and insanity. God does not always judge with severity, Sometimes God's judgment is quiet, which should frighten the world. But the question of evil oftentimes leaves God's people flummoxed and confused. Does God, does God cause evil to take place? My answer is yes. God does cause evil to take place. However, the Bible also says that he is not to be blamed for it. But nothing happens outside of his divine will. Okay, wrap your mind around that. Nothing happens outside of his divine will. If something were to happen outside of his divine will, he's not God. Additionally, evil is not the equal opposite of God, nor is Satan the equal opposite of Jesus. This is not a yin-yang situation. Okay, evil is on a very short leash, as the book of Job teaches us. Evil is only evil and can only be defined as evil because it stands in opposition to God who is good. You want to tell the atheists that next time if they challenge you with the problem of evil. How do you define evil? Because you can't even define evil unless you steal from my worldview, which tells me what is good and what is evil. Evil is not all-powerful and not all-sovereign, though it seems like it sometimes. Okay, I know all of you, like me, are like, what's the next news headline? Oh, how could this possibly get any more stupid? Right? What's going to happen next? 
Evil's not sovereign. God does not allow evil to go on unimpeded. Evil is always on a leash. Evil always eats evil. It's like a snake eating its own tail. That's what evil does. For example, Abimelech attacking his own family. Gaul fighting Abimelech. Shechem turning on Abimelech. Abimelech turning on Shechem. He attacks the people that put him in charge. The temple that supplied the money is actually destroyed in the story. Hilarious. Abimelech's skull is crushed just like what he had done to Gideon's sons. Evil on top of evil, constantly eating at itself, biting at itself, clawing at itself. You see, in God's sovereign plan, there is such a thing as poetic justice, evil enveloping itself to the point of suffocation and total exasperation. Evil can only kill a man, but what happens to evil when that man comes back to life? That's the question. Evil can only kill a man, but what happens when that man comes back to life? See, this passage points us to Jesus for several reasons. First, Abimelech is crushed in the head by a stone. A stone is how he had crushed heads. Jesus is the true head crusher. The one who would rule as a single head of state, Abimelech, smashed his, the heads of his brothers, and in the end, his head is smashed. You should have read that and laughed out loud this week. Jesus Christ smashed the serpent's head. That's why I had Joe read 1 John chapter 3. Second, the hiddenness of Jotham's rebuke as he fled for his life, that hiddenness was made manifest when Jesus took on flesh and stood in the town square. Jesus did not run and hide from evil. He came and he pro proclaimed the truth. Nothing, Paul says elsewhere, was done in secret. Third, unlike Abimelech, Jesus didn't seek out his own glory. What glory can man add to the glory that Jesus already possesses as a member of the triune Godhead? Abimelech was, was irksome and irate. He wanted to be king no matter the cost. He didn't care who he had to murder. He did not care who he had to flatter to make himself better. He didn't care. But Jesus is humble and judicious. He accepted the kingship at the cost of his own self-denying life. That is the pattern. Fourth, what do we learn? Brambles do not win history. Brambles do not win history. Christ, who is making all his enemies a footstool for his feet, wins history. Friends, if you are struggling through our current times, you have to remember that brambles do not win history. Jesus does. I don't know how people who don't have the hope of Christ deal with this stuff for the past two years and, and what seems to be an ongoing revitalization effort of more COVID stuff. Jesus wins history. It was Jesus who is the rock of our salvation who dropped on an unsuspecting world, crushing the serpent's head, demolishing God's enemies, and gathering his people. Bramble men do not win history. It, remember, it was the religious leaders who wanted Caesar to be their Lord and not Jesus, and we all know how that ended. We don't need him. We have Caesar. Caesar's our Lord. Now, wrapping up. We also learn that sometimes the accuser can take root inside the covenant community itself. Abimelech was part Israelite. He was half Israelite, half Canaanite. And if we are not careful, corruption can come from within. 
So do not, church, do not fail at keeping watch over your life and your doctrine. Do not farm out your authority to someone else. That's what humanism does. That's why we are in the mess that we are in. We must choose this day whom we will serve. There is blessing in repentance, real grace-filled blessing, but there is very much cursing in self-worship. There is very much cursing in the establishment of humanism, the, the establishment of men as the final authority. And we all know that Jesus took the curse on himself. How will you respond? How will you respond to him? See, oftentimes the greatest problem with the world is actually ourselves. So guard yourself meticulously and shrewdly. And finally, for those who may feel overwhelmed with all the evil in the world, I want you to consider something my oldest son Elijah said to me last week as we were driving in the car. His observation was striking. He said to me when we were talking about evil, he said that evil stinks, it smells bad. And uh, I thought, huh. That's a great illustration. Imagine having some dead raccoons and rats in your walls of your house. Imagine. Imagine the smell. You've, you've smelled a dead animal, right? It's marvelously gross. <laughs> Imagine the smell. And that's what evil does, right? Evil stinks. It can take your eyes off the beautiful decor. It can take your eyes off the magnificent kitchen the placid, the calming living room that you've set up in your homes as an oasis to peace and serenity, right? You smell that, you don't see all of that, do you? You don't see the decor, you don't see the beauty that's your house. All you can see is what you can smell, and it's rank. In that moment, you can forget the truths of the Bible, you can forget the authority of King Jesus. You can forget the wonders of his word and so on, all because the evil in the world stinks. Make sure you remind yourselves of the glories of the gospel and the treasures of his law. Evil does not win out. Remember what Proverbs 10.24 says, what the wicked dreads will come upon him. God is our lawgiver. He is our judge. Christ is our king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your text here in this story with Abimelech, and we thank you that Jesus is the snake crusher, Lord. And we, we do come and pray before you that, tonight and ask that you would um, intervene in the world, Lord. We are absolutely living in a great time of humanistic nonsense, Lord. Men who have established themselves as career politicians who just want the, the money, the lobbying group stuff, they, they just want the power very few are servants, God, and it's clear that you have brought your judgment and are bringing your judgment. But Father, we know that you deal with your enemies in two ways. You convert them and they become a friend or you crush them and they are judged for eternity in hell. And God, we do pray that you would crush your enemies, that you would revive your church, that the people of God would, would stand tall and strong, busy with the dominion covenant, busy with serving your kingdom. God, would we see some victories? Would we see this county changed, this state changed, God, our nation, the world? We pray for your spirit to come again in a fresh way. May reformation happen, may, may revival happen. 
We know you're the sovereign one, so we give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.